Hi, this is Nicole DeBoer, also known as Esri Dax from Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to another environmental episode of Neil Before Pod, the podcast that never has time for colourful metaphors. I'm Craig and to celebrate the biggest day in the Star Trek fandom calendar, we are going to discuss the much beloved Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, possibly better known as The One With The Whales. First thing I need to do is beam aboard the other contributor. And uh, welcome aboard, Andrew. Yes, uh, happy to be here, sir, and ready to contribute in any way I can. That's the spirit. How is the beam-up? The transport has been playing up lately, and I've never beamed up 400 tons before, so... I maybe have been skimping on the diet a little bit, but I don't think it was quite that much. Well, it's all relative. I beamed you up from a high-gravity planet, so it felt it was 400 tons from the perspective of me. Or maybe I'm just rubbish at transporting. Well, all of the relevant extraneous bits seem to be attached in the right places, so I think we can call it a win. That's good. That's good. It's a good start when I can work the transporter. Okay, so let us begin. First of all, we'll do our award-winning feature, uh, Neil Before Rise Against. If you please go first with your Neil Before... Right, I am kneeling before a Plex series called Love, Death and Robots. Uh, now, uh, this, this is um, an, um, uh, an animated anthology series um, of, it's a, um, of, of, a, of a, a, whole, a, whole, a whole bunch of short episodes just uh, t- telling, uh, telling very short stories. Uh, yes, and, and which feature uh, as, as their as their primary themes, uh, uh, one, one or more of the title designations. Um, uh, quite a few of them um, are adapted uh, from from short stories, but uh, uh, but by by fairly prominent sci- sci-fi authors uh, such as uh, Peter Hamilton and Alistair Reynolds and John Scalzi. Uh, yeah, but the 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 variable. Uh, nature, nature of, of of all stories just just keep, keep, is, uh, is really really interesting because the, there's just so many di- so many different so many different ideas which are which are like um, which can lead to some some really fun stories like uh, like there's one of my one of my favourites um, is uh, a bunch of redneck farmers who who, who are who are piloting mechas to uh, to de- to defend their valley uh, against uh, against the, the, these these kind of demonic entities who who keep on appearing through through this interdimensional portal? As you do. And there's, a, there's another one of, of a, um, uh, detailing how the dominant life form shifted from from humanity to sentient yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, and some uh, some other. And uh, some uh, uh, some other um, other other simple ones like like a like a trio of of robots uh, 
uh, going on a, a tourist trip uh, to, to in, into into a post-apocalyptic city. And, you know, I'm uh, marveling at all the architecture and, and the yes, and, and the, the weird the weird relics of the destroyed humans. That um, that almost sounds a bit like a Futurama episode type concept. That one. Yeah, I could I could t- I could totally see that actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, they kind of went into the ruins of new old New York and stuff. So um, sounds a bit like that. This is really cool. I'll add it to the list of things that I'll never get around to watching. Bloody yep. Netflix! They need to slow down. Like, how am I supposed to keep up with all the stuff that I can't watch? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well actually, well, well uh, these ones, these ones uh, shouldn't shouldn't take that that long to get through because. Because, uh, like, like the, the longest of the episodes is, is, is something like seventeen minutes. All right. Yeah, and, and other other ones are are less than ten. Hmm. So it's almost like a animated weird Twilight Zone. Kind of, yeah. I mean, mm. in, it was intended to be a, a, a kind of a ver- version of um, of of that, uh, that animated eighties anthology film, uh, uh, heavy, heavy Metal, mm. which is. Bug nuts, crazy. Um, with, 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 with like a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant animation and kind of juvenile plotting and humour. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but it's the same kind of thing though. Just lots of lots of uh, different ideas put together um, in, in, into an anthology format. Cool. I shall try to check that out. Now, speaking of Twilight Zone, that is back in like two weeks. Uh, uh, the time of recording. Produced by Jordan Peele. Yes, it's from. Okay, my Neil before is going to be Futurama, just in its entirety. It is 20 years old on the day of recording, uh, and it's brilliant, and I miss it, and it consistently blew my mind for years. It's one of the funniest things on television, it's one of the cleverest things on television. Um, Great characters, great situations, you know, deep dive references that you'd have to be a super nerd to understand that work as jokes um, you know the quantum finish joke is uh, is one of the more celebrated ones um, you know they changed <laughs> yeah, the, the horse wins by a quantum finish no fair you you change the outcome by measuring it, you know? <laughs> yep. um, so yeah just a bit of appreciation for Futurama which is great I mean I'd love to do a podcast on it one day I don't know how the hell that would work um, but yeah it's it's a great show. Uh, yeah, well, uh, and, and doing a podcast on it um, would, would give you an excuse to binge the entire series again. This is true. Um, because that's what I need is uh, to give myself something else to do. <laughs> uh, also, Futurama have predicted the title of Star Wars Episode Nine, Yoda's Bar Mitzvah, in that universe. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we shall see. Um, see. We'll see what JJ comes up with. But if it's not that... It's not just me he's disappointing. It's everybody. This is true. Yeah, so that is my Neil before. Good old Futurama. Um, what would you like to rise against? Okay, I am um, rising against uh, the the t- the TV series uh, of a version of 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 uh, Stephen King's uh, Dark Tower series because. Apparently that is actually still happening. Really? Yeah. But the film was so terrible. Everybody yeah. hated it. It made yeah. no money. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
yeah, uh, yes, and because of this, um, in and instead of instead of instead of complete, completely scrapping uh, our, our property, um, I, uh, the the name of which will have people staying away in droves, I decided to, to just carry carry on with it, um, uh, uh, but just with different actors. Oh, so it's still going to be connected to that awful film. Well, that's not entirely clear. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, because well, because initially the 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 TV series was was going to be an adaptation of of the fourth seri- the fourth novel in the, in the series, which, which called yeah. uh, well, Wizard and Glass. The 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 majority of which um it, uh, uh, t- uh, t- uh, tells uh, tells Roland's backstory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so it's not actually not actually directly connected to to the, the primary narrative of, of the series. Um, but yeah, but, but then when when they kept on changing who was who was going to be involved and who who was doing it and what the hell it was they were even doing in the first place, then uh, just just it seems seemed like nobody had, nobody had a clue what was going on. So I'm not hugely familiar with the Dark Tower novels. Um, I I kind of heard bits and pieces, but I under as I understand it, there's sort of elements borrowed from all of still Stephen King's stories and chucked into one narrative, like multi multiple universe type narrative. So in the the film, the kid has um, the Shining essentially. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and throughout the whole series, like there there's there's references to to to, to just about every every single. Novel and short story that he that he's ever written. Yeah. Like, like even if it's just like a, a, a minor a minor thing chucked, chucked in in passing. And um, it's generally known as, or it's generally believed to be sort of unfilmable. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. It's really just just uh, because just because because of of the scope of it. Yeah. Uh, well, although that's I mean they've said that about stuff before and it's been able to happen, but the, the Idris Elba film is not encouraging. You know, no, and thing I never quite got about it is 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 exactly what why it was just called uh, just called the Dark Tower and and not and not uh, the the Gunslinger, which is mm. the, the name of the first novel in the series. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it was like, a, and it was a, fa- a fairly loose adaptation of even that. Um, yeah, yeah, but but by just just calling it the Dark Tower, then that that, that implied it was going to be, I the like the entire uh, seven seven novel saga condensed into 19, 90 minutes, which is just stupid. Yeah. yeah which, 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 is, which is why so many people didn't bother going to see it because because they just assumed it was going to be terrible. There is one legitimately good joke in it that I remember though. They, they have that he has the kind of catchphrase the forgotten the face of your father. Yeah. Which is an insult that suggests that you've lost your way or whatever. Um. Um, or it's a you know it's a piece of advice or whatever you know and it's when uh, he sees those scantily clad women on a bus, and he tells them that they've forgotten the face of their father, which is legitimately funny joke. It's just you know you get a lot of bad films where there's just one hilarious joke that that almost makes it worthwhile. Superman three with the leading tower of Pisa gag is another one. <laughs> you know that's the only funny thing in that film. Just where he straightens it up, the tourist. Uh, the the tourist uh, kiosk guy buys new towers of Pisa that are now not leaning, and then Superman makes it lean again. <laughs> <laughs> it ruins his life twice. 
It's um, it's really clever. You can just imagine he's got a warehouse of like ten thousand of these buggers, you know, that he just can't get rid of. But uh, yeah, bad films with legitimately funny jokes. That could be a podcast in itself. Top ten bad films with one funny joke in them. If you want to hear it, listeners, let us know. My rise against is going to be the uh, the fact that Supernatural is coming to an end. Uh, I'm aware that it has been on for fourteen years, soon to be fifteen. And uh, I should be grateful. But, you know, I've been watching that show for a decade and a half. And I feel like I'm going to miss it. So, um, yeah, I'm upset Well, that, that it's going to be ending. Um, I kind of understand why, even though they haven't actually told us why. They've just mentioned that. We told the crew it's ending. We want to tell you fans, so that's us. We're packing it in. It's not like in Arrow where Stephen Amell gives us a heartfelt... Um, reason for you know him stepping down and whatever but uh, which we did a podcast about that was actually transcribed well not transcribed someone took minutes and put them on a forum which is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen for a podcast where it could just be yeah just go listen rather than read my minutes of this podcast and they were very detailed minutes oh yeah yes well well somebody obviously cared that much about about what we had to say that they 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 wanted to to make absolutely sure that all all of all of their readers were were having having those opinions imparted to them that's true make sure, making sure the deaf can can experience it um yeah if anyone wants a job of podcast transcriber feel free <laughs> i'm not going to do it uh, <laughs> it takes long enough as it is yeah, I mean, in, and I've I've transcribed in, enough enough interviews um, in my life, like to, to be fully aware of like just how long that kind of thing takes. Yeah, screw that. Just absolutely screw yeah. that. I don't envy anybody that does that. Uh, but yeah, supernatural ending. Fifteen years. It had to happen sometime. I was hoping it would kind of hit the Gunsmoke or Law and Order heights of twenty seasons, just so it could be like at the top of a list somewhere. But. I suppose it's the number one running show on the CW. Uh, longest running show on the CW. Um, yeah, and yeah. the WB, which it kind of inherited, was inherited from. That's how long it's been on, guys. The, the WB is what network it used to be on. Yeah, yes, yes. It was, on, it was on CW before CW existed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so it's a shame. That's uh, three of my favourite shows ending over the next year. iZombie, Arrow, and that. So... That's my rise again. Well, in in regards to to, to, the, to them ending, I, in I I, I think like, like it's, it's a shame cause, it's a shame that they are ending because they are all legitimately good shows. Yeah. But but at the same time, it is also good that that they've decided to end, and in in enough time for 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 them, for them to to get like a, a satisfa- satisfactory conclusion to the show. Yeah. Because because there are dozens of like, of TV shows that I've watched over the years. Um, where it just it just finishes on like a cliffhanger ending of one season, then they decide not to renew it, and then that's all you get, and that and that's how it finishes. So I've seen that time and again, and it is so frustrating. I'm still salty about the Sarah Connor Chronicles just just finishing after season two because that ending was great. Yeah, I mean, and I and it, it had so much potential as well. Yeah. That's what happens when people aren't watching it, I guess. But that's another podcast. And I think we should add Supernatural to the gamut of end-of-season podcasts this year as well. Um, Because I've been trying to think of, since there's three people on the podcast that watch it, 
myself, you and Aaron, um, we should do something. You know, we'll need to do something for it ending, but how do you do a supernatural podcast that sums up the whole series? That's <sighs> impossible. But at least if we start something with an end of season podcast this season, we can sort of start discussing that. Uh, its final season has 20 episodes, I think. So it's a slightly smaller run. Not by much. And it'll probably benefit it in the end, because there's normally six or so episodes where they just go hunt a ghost or something like that, you know, and nothing much happens. I like to call those weeks breathers. Because it's an easy review. It's Sam and Dean hunt a ghost, they discuss the ongoing going plot for a bit, and the episode ends. Job done. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's the usual stuff. But that's that's a discussion for another time. So that's it. Right, so before we get into our spoiler-free thoughts on this film, I just wanted to, since you've never been on to discuss Star Trek before, I uh, wanted to hear what your personal connection to the Star Trek franchise is uh, in general. So what what is Star Trek to you? It, it was like, like a, a staple um, of, of, of my childhood and, and teen years. Because it was, it, was it was one of those, one of those shows... Um, um, where uh, where some iteration of it um was um, was 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 shown like on on week uh, weekday evenings at like half past six on BBC Two, just um, after The Simpsons and Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and when I was younger, uh, one of, one of my one of my favorite computer games um was this. Uh, was was uh, was this a, a game a game called game called Frontier, which is a combination of, of like of like a, like a, a, spa, a space flight. Sim, uh, with, with, with some sort of like interstellar sort of trading bits, um, yeah, and I and I and exploration and ship to ship combat kind of thing. Um, I think of like a very 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 basic version of uh, No Man's Sky. All right, okay. Isn't No Man's Sky a very basic version of No Man's Sky? <laughs> I haven't actually played it. That could be an unfair assessment, but you know, it was a good sound bite. So. Go with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I've I've always been like interested like in, in stars and space like from quite a young age, and from playing that game, um, I was like just having having a lot of fun, just like pretending to be a sort of starship captain. Um, but when I was young, I, I was I I was I was aware like of like, of of Star Trek like as 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 a concept. It took it took me it took me a bit a bit longer than I than than some people like to 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 properly get into it. Mm-hmm. Um. And I partly started watching it, having thought that the the watching Star Trek would would, would like uh, give me ideas for designing my own spaceships. Yeah, because that's the kind of thing that you think uh, you think about when you're when you're a little kid, or yeah, I, cool. I, or I certainly did anyway. Yeah, and just and as I was uh, watching more and more and more of Star Trek and and all of the different series and and figuring out like how how how, how they connected to to one another. Yeah, yeah, and. I just kept on uh, getting further and further into it, and, and and more and more fascinated by by the whole mythos that that, that, that backs it. Cool. Yeah. Uh, listeners to this podcast will will know I love Star Trek. I was raised on a steady diet of it as I was growing up, sort of indoctrinated from an early age. I've always loved it. I've always wanted more of it. Um, just the the possibilities that exist within the franchise, the characters, the just all the stuff, even just the minutia of how the ship works and all their little procedures and all this stuff. You know, I just love everything about it. Uh, and I'm glad that it's, it's still going. 
Um, Discovery is something I really enjoy, which is maybe controversial among some fans, but you know, you're entitled not to like it, but I love it. Um, so yeah, Star Trek's great, and this is one of my favourite films of the thirteen that there is. Yeah, yeah. See, um, um, it's it's uh, uh, one of one of my favourite favourites as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, and uh, despite um, uh, watching the all of the Star Trek uh, TV TV series when, when I was younger, um, it, it wasn't it wasn't until sometime later that I ever. I, I I actually watched any of the films because I can't remember if I wasn't aware that there there were any or 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 I just I just I couldn't couldn't find them anywhere. It's just like being in like pre-internet streaming days. Yeah. I I first watched them. Um, I just um, but it, I just uh, when the 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 guy that I was sharing a flat with at the time uh, uh, had uh, had had all of them on DVD. Um. So just like over about a week, I just kind of blasted through them all. Um, yeah, yeah. It will, except, except, except like like the, the the very first one, um, which he which he didn't have, and and also which I've never actually got around to seeing yet. You've never seen the motion picture? No. Oh wow, you are in for a treat. Yes, yes. Well, yes, well, well there's actually uh, as uh, one, uh, one of my friends um uh, refers to it as the the motionless picture. Yeah, there's also the slow motion picture. That's the other. Yeah. yeah, it has to be seen to be believed. Um, you know, it, it has scenes of them flying around the Enterprise for five minutes, just yeah, literally. It's just cuts between reaction <laughs> shots of. It's not even reaction shots. They're not reacting. They're just looking. So it cuts back to looking shots. Kirk just standing there looking uh, for five minutes as music plays, and it's yeah. Come on, guys. I thought I thought the threat was like on Earth's doorstep and you're like poncing about just taking forever doing nothing um, that's that's another discussion but yeah god you've got to watch this film there are two yeah. versions the director's cut is slightly better oh god it's slightly more watchable the theatrical cut is it's, it's bad uh, I mean they're both bad I mean it's, it's still a bad film it's like when you you know you add a couple of laps to the pod race in Phantom Menace it still sucks I mean it's slightly longer now but it's still terrible so yeah one of your favourites, one of my favourites. So I think we should uh, lull ourselves into the pop spoiler section with the sweet, sweet sound of whale song. Okay, now we are uh, safely cloaked behind a spoiler barrier. Um, we're safe to say whatever we want. Yes, yes, in a transparent aluminium tank. Yes, transparent aluminium. Oh, of course, yes. Because the Americans win, apparently, um, in in terms of pronunciation games. So that's something to look forward to. I mean, I suppose it's better than what we are actually going to get in the future, but that's a, it's a very different discussion. So let's um, let's move on to our award-winning, I don't know what award it wins, but some award, uh, QA section. So... We actually have some questions. I went out on the internet scouring for questions. And I will say that Star Trek fans did not disappoint. I got the kind of questions that only Star Trek fans can ask. And I could not be happier. So the first one I will ask is from Ronnie, who says, Was it ever established that the, what the something similar to a helicopter that Sulu flew in his academy days was? Uh, I don't think so. Um, possibly in a novel I haven't read. Um, I get I get the feeling that if you go to like flight school, 
in in the Star Trek universe, the, you get to fly a, a litany of different things because you never know what you'll encounter on alien planets and things. So, yeah, old Earth helicopters, old Earth planes, old alien planes, various alien shuttles. So I think you would get a good range of stuff. I certainly don't recall anything specific be, being said. And uh, I, I saw it again last night, so if I'd forgotten by then, then it's a very bad memory on my part. <laughs> but yeah, I think your reasoning checks out. Yep, yeah, because yeah, if you're if you're going to be uh, a pilot on the, the, some of the biggest transport vehicles like the the, the, uh, the planet has has constructed, then you know, you know then and it certainly it certainly makes sense to to start off on some smaller things. Yeah, and it was his academy days, so you know it would have been some kind of. I think it would have been some kind of Starfleet training on various things if you want to be a pilot. That's my head cannon. So hopefully that answers your question, Ronnie. Darren asks, what did the Navy do with the communicator, phaser and ID Sulu left behind on the aircraft character USS Enterprise? Uh, There is actually a non-canon answer for this. Uh, In the Eugenics Wars novels... Oh my god, even the start of my answer sounds really nerdy. (laughs) The Eugenics Wars novels. You're in the right company. Yeah. They established that they were reverse, reverse engineered... Um, and they sort of helped them build things like the Botany Bay um, and, and other things. So I suspect that's what happens. Um, it's a bit like in that Voyager episode where uh, a crashed timeship ends up letting the computer age happen. Um, it's this weird thing that human in- innovation is not allowed in science fiction. It has to be aliens or people from the future or aliens from the future um, that, that help you invent everything. But I don't know. Uh, it seemed that the equipment wasn't working all that well. Although it is possible that considering how incompetent these military people are, they might have just thrown them in the bin because they just thought they were rubbish. Because uh, they were just kind of laughing at Chekhov and not taking him seriously. So um, it's anyone's guess really. I'm going to go with they would have taken them apart and used them to come up with some kind of technology that shouldn't shouldn't be invented yet. And that kind of reasoning uh, does uh, does certainly track like with with, with a, a few other instances in, in the films where they were they were they were just blithely dropping like futuristic knowledge yeah. around um, and 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 completely ignoring any potential paradoxes that might create. Yep, the temporal prime directive is. Uh, it's woolly, you know. Uh, you don't have to really worry about it. Um, so the next question is, why was Scotty's rank pin still showing Commander when he had been promoted to Captain and was wearing the Captain rank pin in Star Trek Three? The guy that asked this has the greatest name ever, Elfkin Chewy Brickwood. That is magnificent. It really is. So, um, again, that question is exactly the kind of question that can only be asked by a Star Trek fan Um, I'm going to go with my in-universe headcanon explanation is that's never the job that Scotty wanted so when he was being um, since he was being exiled and his career was likely over anyway uh, why didn't why not just put back on his commander badge because that's what he wants to be Yeah, that that yeah, that works for me. That's a that's a good answer. Yeah, uh, it's also possible that the costumers just messed up. Um, who knows? But I'm just going to go with that. 
it's a vanity thing on his part. He never, because he did say in Relics, the TNG episode, that he never wanted to be anything more than an engineer. Um, and he kind of resented the promotion in, uh, in Star Trek 3. So, I'm going to go with that. Um, the next one is sort of related. It's from Michael, who asks, if, if the Enterprise crew were on Vulcan for months, why are they still wearing the same clothes they wear in Star Trek 3? I would just assume it's a bully, because if, if I, those are like their... their you know, like, 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 like the clothes they have, then they, then they would have like a kind of like a, a, a different copies of, of the same clothes, maybe. Uh, probably not. I mean, they didn't. You know, they didn't pack a bag before beaming off the destroyed Enterprise. Um, they didn't seem to pack a bag for stealing the Enterprise either. Uh, yeah, you would think the Vulcans would have the ability to give them some extra clothes. At least for Spock, he could have had one of them Smurf hats that the other Vulcans have. Instead of like his bathrobe, I mean they do it because it's it's recognisably what they were wearing in the previous film, and it's possible they just you know it's like the last day of your holiday, it's uh, they they wear their old clothes to travel, uh, so they were cutting about in Vulcan stuff for the past three months or however long it was, and uh, and then decided to put their own clothes on for going back home. Now, although I've always wondered why uh, why the Federation couldn't just send a ship to pick them up, it's like yeah you fix up that bird of prey and then come back. Uh, but never mind. It's one of those plot holes we just have to put up with to uh, to let the story happen. Um, it's just one of those things. Uh, okay, next question. Is it true that Gillian Taylor, Catherine Hicks' character, was originally supposed to be played by Eddie Murphy? Why didn't that happen? That's from Benjamin. The uh, short answer to that is yes. Um, I don't think it's exactly yes, though. I well, think well, it's... Well. A version of the script had Eddie Murphy in it at one point. Yeah, what happened was that was like the, the original version of the script had an astronomer character who was obsessed with, with aliens. Yeah, and that part was was intended for for Eddie Murphy, and there was a a, a, a connection like between between Eddie Murphy and and one of the writers from a previous film that I can't recall off the, off the top of my head. Um. Then what happened was was Eddie Murphy like really uh, wasn't interested, and I think he was actually more, more more interested in playing playing an alien himself. And when that didn't work out, he instead uh, went off and made the 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 Golden Child. Hmm. And if any any listeners have have ever have ever 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 seen that, then 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 you will be painfully aware of 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 which which decision would have been the right one. <laughs> Uh, Eddie Murphy did get to play an alien eventually in Meet Dave. To date, the only film I've walked out of the cinema <laughs> when watching. I actually blanked that out. Yeah. I completely well, forgotten the existence of it. of it. I've never seen all of it. I got about half an hour in and thought, I've had enough. And then left. <laughs> it's just, no, no, this is too crap. Yeah. Uh, but I've never walked out of a film since or before that. So that's that. Um, yeah, good answer. That is the answer. You know a bit more about it than I did. I just know that there was a version of the script that had Eddie Murphy in it at one point and it didn't come to pass. It's because he was popular at the time and they thought we'll get him in it because we want to appeal to a wide audience. So getting someone who's popular in our Star Trek film will help. Um, it's funny that he never got Kirstie Alley in a Star Trek film when she was popular. She became popular <laughs> afterwards. So that's, um, that's something. Next question. 
didn't showing a whaling ship, a Klingon bird of prey, violate the Prime Directive? And then they quoted the moment from uh, Star Trek Into Darkness where Spock says, you violated the Prime Directive, and Kirk says, oh, come on, Spock, they saw us, big deal. And that's from Max. Um, short answer is, yes, it does violate the Prime Directive. Well, that is a good way to dissuade your whaling ship from killing the whales. Um, and I suspect that they won't, these whalers wouldn't have actual proof and it would just be dismissed as one of those cockamamie UFO stories that, that permeated, still permeate um, our planet to this day. So I feel like for Kirk it was a calculated risk. Yeah, um, though if you are if you are uh, going going to cite um, uh, uh, established uh, established Trek rules, um, then I don't think Into Darkness is really the the best source to take them from. Well, they're they're kind of right on the Prime Directive, and they had something interesting in there. But um, yes, it's terrible. Um, I mean, another appropriate question would be. Uh, you know, you could also argue that landing the bird of prey in the middle of Golden Gate Park, which is bound to have thousands of people walking through it every day, is also a breach of the Prime Directive because people are about to walk into it. It's a busy park. Yeah, that that was that was one of the things that really bugged me about the film. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm sure no one's going to come through here over the next few days. Uh, there's also the fact that there's this obvious indentation in the ground and some crushed bins. Uh, which is going to be a problem for us. But, you know, again, we just put up with that conceit. Um, so, yeah, violation of the Prime Directive, but, you know, it wasn't the only one. And we all know that Kirk is somewhat cavalier when it comes to time travel. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, he doesn't really care. Um, most most Starfleet captains are, to be fair. When they go back in time, they start off by saying, we can't break the timeline by the end of it. They're like, you know what? Who's going to know? Everyone else's memories will be updated to conform to the new timeline. It might only be us that knows. It's fine. If anyone asks, we'll say, yeah, this is how it always happened. And then, yeah, we'll delete the memory banks of the ship that we're on just to make sure that uh, it does conform to that. I don't know. That's fraud, I suppose. Well, I have thought of it being, being faintly, faintly ironic that but, uh, taking taking that kind of attitude, attitude to, toward, towards timeline, like in, in, in later years... Uh, whereas the TV series uh, episode uh, City on the Edge of Forever, which is like generally regarded as one of the best episodes of the entire series, like pretty much uh, revolves around pre- uh, keeping keeping the timeline preserved. Yeah, well, they're stealing whales, so they're already breaching the timeline. But um, it is a cool shot. I think that's why they did it more than anything else. It's just a cool shot seeing the bird of prey looming over the the whaling ship. So, yeah. Final question from David: What is your favourite joke? I'm assuming in this film and not just in general, because yeah. it's like a whole can of worms. So I'm going to go with like Scotty trying to talk to the computer. It kills me every time. That whole McCoy Scotty team up thing just kills me because it's just the you don't really see the two of them work together very often uh, in the original series and stuff. So it's a, it's a bit of a treat because they are both very snarky sort of people. So that you know they. I could see them sort of really annoying each other. But the bit where Scotty walks up to the computer and assumes it's like a 23rd century computer and, and starts talking to it. Although, even though most of the time you see Scotty operate computers, he's pressing buttons. So I don't know why he's assuming that right away. Because comedy. Yeah. Because comedy, yeah. And then he just sits down, computer, 
computer, and then McCoy hands him the mouse. And, and he speaks into that. Yeah, he says, hello, computer, and the mouse. It just kills me every single time. And um, it's I think it's an especially... Uh, it's, the joke has aged especially well because of how archaic the technology is by today's standards as well. So it's it's one of those, if you're watching it, I mean, if you were watching it for the first time in 2019, and the, and you see that, you can be like, oh yeah, you couldn't talk to computers back in those days. You know, yeah. we're living in the days of Siri and things like that, and people are kind of used to talking to stuff now. So it now works on a different level, just by being old. Um, and then there's the bit where McCoy tells Scotty that he might be altering the future, and then he's like, well, how'd you know he didn't invent the thing? Which I find hilarious, because it'd be like me going back in time and inventing double glazing. Would it really? Would anyone care? I mean, except the guy that invented double glazing, I suppose. Um, but yeah, would anybody be that bothered? You know, would it change the timeline that much? Hmm. Who knows? You know, who knows who invented these things? There's all sorts of innocuous inventions that you can take credit for because they don't have that much historical significance. And transparent aluminum is certainly one of them, probably. It's just one of those things they have, and no one really knows the. You know, it's not like it's the the warp drive. Hmm. Uh, one of my favourite moments in it was uh, after they uh, first arrive in, in San Francisco, like like uh, like at night, and then 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 touching touching down the park and leaving the leaving the cloak cloak in the vessel and then start wandering away, and then and then Kirk just blithely declares like, okay, everybody every everybody remember where where we parked. To this day, that is a family joke. Whenever we go and park anywhere, everybody remember where we parked. Yeah, it's it's quite funny. I like it when the two uh, bin men or or garbage men, if you're listening in the US, are bickering before, and then they see the the door open, and it's like Close Encounters. You know, it's mm-hmm. the, the the white light and the the sort of distorted figures, and and it's like, yeah, what did you see? And I didn't see anything. You know, neither did you. Shut up! And they drive off, and it's uh, it's quite fun, sort of seeing the perspective, um, the crew from that perspective, even if it is for a second. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of good jokes which we'll come on to, but those, yeah, I would say those those are good ones. Uh, my favourite one is the computer one. It just will always continue to kill me. So that's the end of our QA section. Thanks to everybody that contributed with all your super nerdy stuff. Absolutely loved it. So next up, we're just going to talk about the film. So. This film was a more light-hearted entry in the Star Trek franchise. After we had two fairly intense films with Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock that were both heavy on themes of death and rebirth and revenge and all this sort of stuff. And then suddenly the the Voyage Home comes along, or the one with the whales if you want to just refer to it as that. It comes along and it's fun. You know, the crew get to kick up their heels, travel back in time, um get involved in something that's not quite so action-heavy, not quite so emotionally intense, and it's great. I mean, I often argue that that Star Trek is as popular as it is because of the variety in the storytelling. So, you know, you can have two episodes that are completely different. And this is the film version of that. You know, so it shows that Star Trek can be a comedy. The cast can apply themselves to this sort of stuff. And it's still can be taken seriously enough within the confines of itself. Um, 
and I think this one stands the test of time because the humour works, the characters are um, are still strong, they're still keeping to their strengths, um, and the actors are very good at engaging with the material. And I think one of the main reasons why the humour in it still works is is it's because a lot of a lot of it is is based on 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 the characters themselves. And so even though this is a film which is over thirty years old now, the humour in it uh, for, for the most part does, doesn't feel dated. Yeah, because they're making fun of Spock because he doesn't understand Earth customs uh, as they always would. That's never going to change. They don't understand the past anyway. So yeah, the humour will always work. Yeah, it's even though even though between them, like they, uh, they have have a, a very a very diverse skill set. Uh, none of them are historians. Yeah. Yes, and so the the minutia of of um, everyday twentieth century life isn't isn't something that any of them will, will understand, and and they won't have any uh, um, any situations that that they can compare it to to allow them to 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 properly fit in and not look weird. Yeah, and you've got like the narrative diversity as well that that exists between all the films. Really, I mean, Star Trek Two: Wrath of Khan is very Shakespearean uh, in the way it comes across, and I mean, Moby Dick is referenced in that film as well. So you know, there's there's kind of a classical literature vibe to it. Um, in a militaristic vibe in terms of the, the the way it's built up. I mean, we did a podcast on Wrath of Khan before that I can't remember if we discussed any of that stuff. Probably. Uh, Star Trek 3 was kind of along those lines, but not quite as good. Uh, although it does have one of my favourite sequences in all ten films in it. Um, I say ten films because that's the original film's pre-reboot. Uh, the Stealing the Enterprise sequence is still one of the best put-together sequences of any Star Trek film. It's just so wonderfully done, wonderfully scored. And then you have this film, which is, you know, could be more different. Um, the th- it's a bit lighter. Well, it's far lighter. The, th- the themes are, are very different. The style is very different. You know, it's not quite as, uh, you know, theatrical, so to speak. Um, and, and it's, I mean, it's got a bit of a on-the-nose environmental message. Don't kill whales. Which is deliberately on the nose because it should be obvious and they shouldn't have to make a film about not killing whales but they have to make a film about not killing whales because at that point the humpback whales were close to extinction and I don't think they are anymore I'm not saying this film's the cause of that but I am saying this film's the cause <laughs> of that people watched Star Trek and thought oh crap we better stop hunting whales and then that's it. and yeah then they hunted something else uh, and yeah. It's yep. not the first environmental message Star Trek's had, and it's not the last it will have. I hope, but um, it works. Yeah, and even even when the films uh, do, do do have specific messages that they're trying to impart, I mean, it it's, it's, it, cer- it certainly doesn't mean that they that they can't be de- 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 uh, decent films in and of themselves. Uh, out with that, even without the environmental aspects of, of, of the story like like it is still a, a, a very fun and an engaging film and if the crew were to, were to have had to travel to to the, to, to the past for, for, for a different reason yeah then it still would have been just as good yeah I mean it's a very much character a character driven film you know it's it's about how the characters react to the situation so the situation could be anything they could be in the they could be in the past looking for a part for the ship. I don't know why they would be, but it's a really stupid example, but they could be. 
um, and it wouldn't really change the film that much. And then, like, if 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 if, if want to like 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 uh, compare it to 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 something like Superman Four, which was just painful. Yeah, yeah, that's somewhat. It's around about the same time, isn't it? Uh, same year, I think. Might it might actually yeah, it might actually be. I think so. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, um, the magic of editing will make me right. Um, Superman for the Quest for Peace, nineteen eighty-seven. So it's a year from year after that. But yes, yeah, I suppose the eighties were was full of films that had some weird environmental message. The, the late eighties, because people were getting kind of switched on to the the damage that was being done to the planet. So you were getting all these kind of wake up through entertainment sort of stories. And obviously, Star Trek originally existed to highlight issues that are plaguing us now, uh, or plaguing them in the sixties. Um, overpopulation, all that kind of stuff, racism, uh, and it was highlighting it through the fact that this doesn't exist in this and in, in this future, and look at how idyllic it all is, and everyone gets along. No one cares that there's um, there's a black woman on the bridge. No one cares that there's an alien on the bridge. You know, everybody's treated equally, um, according to the rank. I mean, the Russian guy is still an ensign and is treated like an ensign, but you know, the. He's not an ensign because he's Russian. He's just an ensign because he's young, um, in the original series anyway. So it's nothing new, and I think it was typical of the time period. And at least it doesn't beat you. Well, I suppose it does beat you over the head with the environmental message. It's like, oh, we shouldn't have hunted those whales to existence because now there's weird probes that try to talk to them and they're not here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is never explained either. Yeah, you you just don't have to think about that. I mean, I think if they'd sat down and told us the probe has been sent by this alien race who talked to whales because it helps them understand the culture of the planet through the whale's observation, you'd be like, I don't care. I don't want to know. Yeah, actually, you're right. Actually, saying out loud, that actually sounds really stupid. Yeah. It's like it's almost like in uh, Prometheus where they learn that the, uh, the engineers um, dropped blood into the ocean and um, or dropped whatever it was into the ocean and created the human race. Like, I don't need to know this. Why are you telling me? Yeah, I, I, I don't consider the events of Prometheus chemical to anything. That, that, that is, it's just a thing that exists and should not be considered yeah. for anything to be connected to anything else at all. Yeah. So yeah, for some reason, there's an alien race that wants to talk to whales, and only whales. And they've sent a probe because the whales aren't talking to them, and they're wondering why. And that's it. I mean, it yeah, it completely beats you over the head with the environmental message. Uh, if only we hadn't killed those whales, then uh, we wouldn't be dealing with this problem. Um, I'm just not looking forward to the the Kelvin verse version of that story. I mean, we'll we'll never get it. But can you imagine? Presumably, it's on its way. <laughs> Yeah, I'd really rather not think about it. It's just just because of like like the complete and utter lack of anything resembling subtlety that like the the Kelvin verses have largely had thus far. And I'd shudder to think how uh, well, what 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 they would do with an environmental oriented story. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, the humpback whales aren't extinct by the beginning of the twenty first century, so we're okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll, uh, uh, maybe maybe be, be like like uh, like uh, white uh, uh, white rhinos or something somehow. I yeah. don't know. I don't know how that would tra- how that would 
uh, that would translate to interstellar communication. But because whales, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the the structure of this film, they split the characters into teams. There's you know three main teams. Uh, Kirk and Spock, because of course. Because Kirk and Spock. Yeah, I'm surprised that McCoy's not with them, but McCoy and Scotty as a team up was good fun. Um, and then you have uh, Chekhov and Uhura, uh, and um, Scotty, not Scotty, well, I already said Scotty, and uh, then Sue is kind of on his, on his own, well he was on Scotty's team for a bit, um, until he goes and sources a helicopter, because you can just do that, you can just walk up and be like, can I borrow this helicopter, and the guy's <laughs> like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you never see how what he does to convince him, maybe you don't want to see. <laughs> It might have something to do with him not being called Tiny. That's a Star Trek 3 joke, bringing in into Star Trek 4. Continuity. Yeah. Um, but there's that. So, um, the Chekhov and Ahura one's probably the weakest one. It's the one you see least of. I suppose the Sulu one is the one you see least of. Um, but the Chekhov and Ahura one, they're just... Uh, it's the weakest in terms of... The, the mechanics of it, although it does have the point where Chekhov standing around in the middle of uh, San Francisco asking where the nuclear vessels are. <laughs> <laughs> height of the Cold War, Russian guy saying, got nukes? Where's your nukes? Yeah. I'm in need of some nukes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, uh, yes. For some reason, the, uh, a police officer just does not react to this. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, though, it was, like, it was filmed sort of from a distance with like a candid camera and stuff, so like the the reactions are somewhat genuine. The people walking past, and then you know you have that woman that stops them and or that, that stops and says, "Oh, I don't know if they, I know the answer to that. I think they're across the bay in Alameda." And it's like, "Yeah, I know they're in Alameda. Where's yeah, I, Alameda? I don't know where that is." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so apparently they had they liked that so much that they had to pay her, like they had to pay her Screen Actors Guild money. You know that that's the rules. Um, so. Quite a risky manoeuvre, I suppose, but uh, but it pays off because it, it looks kind of natural. Um, already said about Scotty and McCoy, how great they were as a pairing. You know, where, where Scotty's like, may my assistant join us? Don't <laughs> bury yourself in the part. Um, great, yeah. Yeah, and, and then he's just standing there with his massive smug grin on his face. <laughs> yeah, McCoy in general is, is brilliant. I mean, I think he's brilliant in general, but in this film in particular... It's the, it's the bit towards the beginning, you know, where they're they're putting it all together, they're hatching their plans. Uh, Kirk's about to tell Spock to go to time, you know, to to prepare for time travel, and McCoy's just like, "What the hell are you doing? Am I the only sane one here?" <laughs> it's just it's just hilarious. Where he's just that's his main job in this film. He gets to berate people, and that's all. He just berates everyone that he comes across. Most uh, most of all, Kirk. Uh, it's like, well, this is crazy. This plan is insane. Can't you see that? Also, look at Spock. He was, like, dead a few weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just letting him calculate how we travel back in time. There's the, you know, I don't think he's operating on all thrusters uh, line, which is, is just killer. Um, and, of course, him in the hospital. <laughs> just witnessing the illnesses of the period. Yes, and the, the horrific Dark Ages healthcare of 20th century medicine. Yeah. <laughs> We're dealing with medievalism here. Uh, 
And the pill that can help you grow a new kidney. Just as a bowling down the corridors to escape, it's just like the old woman in the wheelchair is like, the doctor gave you a pill, I grow a new kidney. And the doctors are just like, it's fully functional, I don't know what happened. I think it's a pill that just repairs her existing kidney. I mean, I don't know what happens with kidney dialysis, but your kidney's still there, I think, isn't it? Well, it's basically like, it's it's used because like because like you you your your kidneys kidneys aren't functioning properly, and so like yeah you get hooked up hooked up to like to like to 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 to, to, to a little tubes that the 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 pass your pass your blood through a machine, which does the job of your kidneys. Yeah, yeah so it's probably just repaired her kidneys. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with that head cannon. Uh, but yeah, it's hilarious. Um, and he says that that Gillian has cramps. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, it's. The little like the little flub they make as they leave the room, and it's like, "How's the patient, doctor?" It's like he's going to make it. It's like you came in with a she. It's like one mistake. <laughs> <laughs> we almost made it out. <laughs> uh, such a such a great bit. Yeah, but the obviously Kirk and Spock teaming up. I mean, because they're just they're best pals. They're such a great pairing, and you have Spock kind of reverting back to a, almost a childlike persona. You know, where he just doesn't understand the lessons that he learned before he died. Um, a lot of people suggest that he had to learn everything all over again, but I think it was more that his memories were still settling. Yeah. Because by the time you see him in Star Trek... No, Star Trek Five, he's still a bit like this. Uh, Star Trek Six, he's back to his old self. Um, more or less. So, so in this, I think everything's just settling in. Although... The fact that he refuses to lie makes no sense because, as a Starfleet officer, you would have to accept an order to tell a lie occasionally. You know, Spock, you are undercover. You have to be dishonest here. Um, I mean, I think that would be all it takes, but then you'd have had far less jokes about um, colourful metaphors and Gracie being pregnant. And the f- <laughs> here it is, and and Spock and Spock uh, not not realizing that like, diving into a tank with a pair of wheels might look a bit conspicuous. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was that was brilliant. Just uh, I think uh, Shatner's acting in that moment is top level ham. <laughs> it's just you know his over the top reaction as he's just pacing from <laughs> to the side. Just what the- <laughs> yeah. Uh, no one can no one can react like Shatner does. Just like no one raises an eyebrow like Leonard Nimoy does. And even Kirk, like for all his knowledge of the of the past, apparently, doesn't know that much. Uh, you know, he knows that he needs to swear. He doesn't know that hundred dollars really isn't a lot of money. Um I think he got done when selling those glasses actually. Yeah, yeah, I think about seeing it seeing as they were they were possibly antiques when you could you see, you shouldn't be able to get to get a hell of a lot more from them. Yeah, the the guy saw him coming. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's like oh, there's a crack in the lens, and it's only worth a hundred bucks. Yeah. Uh, now they have thirty three dollars each to get around <laughs> San Francisco, uh, which is you know not ideal. No one seems to struggle with money though, which is fine. Apart from needing exact change for the bus. Yeah, um, it's just again a great gag. They get on the bus, the door closes, you don't see the conversation, they get off the bus, you don't see the conversation. It's, uh, what does it mean, exact change? Uh, and of course, 
you don't see how they get the change to get on the bus later on. Presumably they just ask someone, uh, do you have change for this amount of money, please? And then they end up getting like bus fare for their 30 bucks. I can see that happening. The bus sequence is, you know, it has a fantasy realisation for almost everybody that's ever been on public transport. You know, you have the douchebag playing music uh, and Spock nerve pinches him, which is apparently something that Leonard Nimoy actually experienced. Apart from, I assume, knocking him out. I guess he didn't do that. Uh, but, yeah, I've been on many as a bus where people don't realise that headphones exist. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah or, or, just, or, just, or just don't care and, and, and decide that they're going to be as annoying as possible just for the hell of it. Yeah. And the uh, punk on bus, as he's credited, played by Kirk Thatcher, um, he's actually quite a prolific guy. In, in the industry he's produced a lot of stuff directed a lot of stuff written a lot of stuff you know he's done he's written Muppet stuff uh, some puppet stuff as well so I mean he he wrote Muppets Tonight which was a TV series that ran from 1996 to 1998 I'm totally not reading um, this off at IMDB he also wrote Muppet Treasure Island wow. and the screenplay for the video game as well <laughs> <laughs> of course uh, but apparently Kirk Thatcher has said no matter what happens uh, he will always be known as Punk on Bus from Star Trek 4 <laughs> I think he did some visual effects work for Robocop too. I don't think I know it's right here um, he also wrote that song that, that's on the bus and performed it as well uh, the, the Screw You one, the, the punk one which is a great little parody of a, a, a punk song while also being a punk song it's like the most accurate parody you could think of for that kind of music, and it also works as a song. Uh, and he's also in Spider-Man Homecoming as well. He's uh, carrying his ghetto blaster, and he asks Spidey to do a flip. I completely missed that. Yeah, it's towards the beginning of the film. Uh, next time you watch it, look out. It's hmm. there. He's like punk on street in that <laughs> film, I suppose. Uh yeah, so that's that. A uh, bit of trivia for you. Um, so obviously this film introduces a new character outside of the original series crew called Gillian. Gillian Taylor, Catherine Hicks plays her. She's a cetacean biologist. She's kind of just there for nuisance value. She's there to get in the way. Um, and then she uproots her life and goes to live in the 23rd century, which must make her... a Really bizarre missing persons case. Yeah, that was one of the things I always thought about the film. It's like, it's like how like how that worked for for her just, just uh, randomly disappearing one day, and to, to never be seen from again. Yeah, I mean, I suppose people vanish all the time, so it'd just be one of those. I guess it would be a missing persons report that would just get forgotten about eventually. She did say that she had nobody, in in her own time. Presumably, people at work would have missed her, like that douchey guy. I forget his name, but that douchey guy, uh, who she slaps, yeah. which is you know I'd go straight to HR about that one. <laughs> the the tour sequence on the in the institute always kind of baffles me because they walk over that screen and they just show like whales being brutalised. Um, that presumably that tour is enjoyed by children. It's a bit it's a bit intense. 
to be showing people. Perhaps they're they're an institute who don't believe it, don't believe in coddling children from the truth. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I think they should they should they should learn that at a, at a, at a young age. Or, or what a brutal and violent and unforgiving place the world is. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh look, if whales are hunted. Here's a video of their intestines spilling out on the deck of a ship. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> oh my god, they they get to the they get to the restaurant at the end of the tour, and it's like. You got any salad, please? Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, no, that's fine. I don't want... Um, and I'm not hungry. Uh, look, here's our here's our humpback whales. You may recognise them from being cut open about half an hour ago. Great animatronics for the whales. Yeah, yeah, they are, yeah, yeah, they were actually uh, really impressive. And uh, I believe like, all the effects stuff was, was done by ILM. Yeah. And hilariously, you can tell when they cut to like documentary footage of whales, like frolicking in the water, especially at the end where the just two the footage looks completely different from the scene that precedes it. Yeah. So in one shot, they're just swimming majestically through the ocean, and the next they're just kind of like sat there in the tank, motionless. Yeah. And uh, apparently, not too disoriented about what the hell just happened. Yeah. Well, apparently, Greenpeace. Um, I think it was Greenpeace. Some environmental agency, anyway wrote letters to Paramount about like the mistreating whales for the the production so like the, the animatronics were that convincing uh, that people got annoyed about them like letting Leonard Nimoy swim with a whale it's like no he didn't actually do that you thought those were real and that wasn't Leonard Nimoy that was some stunt guy <laughs> <laughs> could Leonard Nimoy hold his breath that much Jillian's one of those weird characters. You always have this in sci-fi films where you have this character that has to has to acclimate to this larger world they're suddenly become a part of. So, you know, Luke Skywalker, for example, in, um, in A New Hope, uh, doesn't really care about his uncle and aunt being burned to death. He, but, uh, and he just kind of go, rolls with the punches after that. And then you've got Jillian who learns about the future. She learns about sort of aliens... She learns time travel. This, yeah, she learns that time travel's a thing. Yeah, uh, she learns all this stuff, and she just sort of takes it in her stride. And apparently, is competent um, in, in, enough enough at her job uh, that, uh, that that she is able to able to immediately uh, get 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 a placement on a on on a on a science ship, uh, despite by her own admission, her knowledge being three hundred years out of date. Yeah, I'm guessing it's some kind of science vessel, like water-based science vessel that's going to study the whales. That'd be my guess. Yeah, that, 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 that would work. Yeah. So she doesn't really need to know that much, but yeah, it's a bit weird. Um, I'm surprised they're not charged with you know, messing with the timeline by stealing this person. Although she kind of stole herself, I suppose. Um yeah, she's there as a kind of a shortcut through some of the, the the extra stuff. You know, the she gives Kirk the information that he needs about the whales, helps him with the hospital visit, helps him with all that stuff. So uh, she's kind of there for nuisance value, really. Uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah and, and and also because uh, apparently William Shatner uh, demanded to to have a love have a love interest. Yeah, although I don't really see her as a love interest. No, I I, I didn't I didn't either. I mean, because because the, there was like like one one random dinner that that they shared, but Kurt uh, doing his best to be all charming, but it uh, didn't really come off as anything romantic. No, I mean he puts the moves on her, but that's more as a 
an attempt to get information. That's just what Kirk does. If there's a woman, he's going to try and charm her. Yeah, it's, it's like his, his default reaction. Yeah, it's what he does. Um, and he doesn't have Spock there to, to cramp his style hmm. at that point. Um, I love his reaction when he drinks the beer. Michelob, though, it's dreadful beer. You don't want to be drinking that. It's American crap. Don't think I've ever, ever tried it. No, I don't. It's, um, I think it's American anyway. I know it's drank a lot in America. Um, I had some when I was in New York. Or I, I witnessed it when I was in New York. Michelob is a low-carb and low-calorie light beer. That's Michelob Ultra. Uh, it has two stars on ratebeer.com. <laughs> because, of course, th- that website exists. Of course. What? The internet. Yeah, the internet is nothing but rating stuff. Oh, yeah. St. Louis, Missouri. So, yes, it is, um, it is American crap. So, yeah. Um, just a bit of beer facts for you there. I get the impression Kirk hasn't drank a lot of beers. Because um, he'll have some weird future stuff. I think he'd drink whiskey, I suppose. We've seen him drink whiskey and, and some stuff. I'm not including the, the Abrams stuff in this. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm sure he's drank whiskey as a, with, with someone. Uh, he has a drink in Star Trek 3, but I'm not sure what it is. I don't know. Like this, this is this is what being a Star Trek fan is. You start asking what they're eating and, and nonsense like that. Uh, it's really weird. It's a really weird fandom, but I love it. It's yeah. my fandom. Yeah, yeah, just uh, constantly obsessing over the tiniest detail. Yeah, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the major arcs of the film, to get back to something resembling a point, is Spock sort of finding himself again. So, you know, the dynamics there. He still trusts Kirk. He's still got a good back and forth with Kirk but he's not all there he's he's struggling a little bit and uh, I love it when you know McCoy walks up and, and wonders what it feels like to be dead and asks him and he's like I couldn't possibly discuss that without a common frame of reference and it's like for god's sake <laughs> <laughs> it's like you mean I have to die to discuss your insights on death it's like yep uh, and, and Spock's he's a bit like that guy in the office that just won't talk you know, he just won't talk to you about um, anything. Uh, it's like, no, no, I have work to do. Please leave me alone. Please come back and discuss this during the designated break periods. <laughs> like, oh, come on, Spock. Um, and there's other little instances of that, just where he just doesn't get it. Um, when I mean, I've already mentioned the, his lack of ability to lie. Um, and when uh, Kirk tries to pass off his weird behaviour by being part of the free speech movement and he took a lot of LDS. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you're at Berkeley? I was not. (laughs) Um, So I think by the end of the film he's starting to understand bits and pieces. You know, he has this... um, He's the one that suggests they have to go find Chekhov because that's a human thing to do, even though it's not the logical thing to do. And uh, you have that the payoff of the is standardized testing at the beginning of the film, where the last question is, "How do you feel?" And he understands the question by the end of the film, uh, which is which is a nice like connective connective tissue between the two moments in the film. Um, the testing sequence is hilarious, just with this hyper accelerated computer voice just asking quick fire questions. 
Um, I feel like that's the mandatory learning that he has to do in order to get, you know, be certified to be back in its space. You know, when you you work in an office and you have to make sure you're up to date with your data protection, e-learning. Oh God, don't don't start really. <laughs> yeah, make sure you understand what money laundering is before before you before you're only to work here. <laughs> in the the job that I had in the firm of lawyers, been keeping on top of all that was literally my job. It's a freaking nightmare because. Yeah, because I'm not going to go into it because it's boring as hell. I also also got a feeling with Spock was by going through um, all, all that testing and it was uh, letting his mind sort of like refocus into how it was prior to his death. So by making him think like about facts and information, it's uh, like, like uh, tra- training training him to think again. Yeah. And to, to be able to retain, fa- retain facts and information. Yeah, and it's good that the film is essentially bookended by him having moments with his parents. So he has that moment with his mother who gives him the kind of the emotional support you know um, tells him basically gives him the, the, the thing to think about throughout the film you know the the message in um, Wrath of Khan was his, his, his belief is that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few which is a completely utilitarian outlook you know the idea that you would kill one person to save a thousand fine that's a logical way of putting things Um and uh, Amanda helps him contextualise the actions his crew took to save him because the needs of the one was more important than the needs of the many as far as they were concerned Spock was that important to them and it, part of it is him understanding that and I think him agreeing or him suggesting that they go find Chekhov despite him being you know despite that being a kind of breach of that needs of the many mantra is him understanding that, that understanding that no, some things are more important and um, some things are worth the risk. Sometimes some things are worth potentially sacrificing many people for. Yeah, yeah, and that quality of life isn't isn't something that you that you're that you can measure numerically, despite that uh, um, at times not seeming logical. Yeah, and the scene he has with Sarek is great as well. It's actually the only the second scene they share together in the whole franchise. Um, because he's only in one episode of the original series. Uh, they share a couple of scenes in that episode. So it's only the second thing that they've been in together that they share a scene. Because they don't really share any scenes in Star Trek 3. Um, because, you know, he's dead uh, for most of it. Uh, or, you know, a, a blank ageing body for, for most of it. So, it's you know it's great to see the, them sort of getting on the same page, a little bit, uh, where Sarek tells him, "I, I, impo- I, I opposed your enlistment in Starfleet. It's possible that was uh, I misjudged that, and um, you know your friends not that bad. Um, I mean, you think Sarek could have pulled a couple of strings to get, uh, to to get Kirk's Enterprise stealing a bit." legitimised but I don't know I don't know what influence Sarek has as the Vulcan ambassador but um, but it's a great scene and Sarek's earlier scene where he just wanders into that um, that meeting uh, there's so much gravitas to him Mark Leonard is is incredible in that role yeah, yeah, I, I, to- I totally agree. Um, it, it really, it really, really takes somebody with a certain amount of presence like, to be able to pull off something like that and make it seem believable. You could just, could just walk into a room and just immediately command it. Yeah, 
And James Friend's good in the role. I think um, I'm not sure whether he commands as much uh, ownership of the part as Mark Leonard did, but he's actually had more time in the role now, uh, way more time um, in terms of actual physical minutes of screen time. But um, I think the guy in Star Trek 09 was pretty crap, though. Ben, whatever his name was, uh, he wasn't that great. But this, yeah, can't remember. Yeah, Mark Leonard is. Is quite something, and he only appears in a handful of things as well. Um, I mean, you get to see him again in the next generation, uh, which which was good as well. Just before, uh, just kind of before he dies in two episodes of that. So yeah, no complaints there. Although it's funny when he tells, um, he gives the Federation president the idea of doing a planetary distress call, which apparently hadn't occurred to him before then. <laughs> it's like well, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> Shortly after the the president was impeached, he had to stand down because he was an idiot. Uh, they've got a new president, Star Trek Six, although it could just be his term was up, I suppose. Uh, but since when do presidents like oversee trials uh, of, um, of, ca- <laughs> of 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 uh, a military personnel, essentially? Yeah, I mean, because it wasn't so like they're they're even being, being charged with treason, just or just guy high level insubordination. Nine violations of Starfleet regulations, which is cut down to one, uh, because because they saved the planet. That was lucky. Otherwise, can you imagine uh, what would have happened? But it's just funny reading out the when they read out the charges, and then it ends with them. I oh, yeah, we're going to demote you and um, give you command of a starship, which is what you want. So great. You can be out there making more trouble for us. It's a great idea. Yeah, so just head out and accept your punishment of of doing everything that you wanted to begin with. I feel like if I saved the galaxy, I wouldn't want to be put back to work. I'd want to never work again. True, but but then you do hate your job, though. This is true. But um, even if I did like my job, yeah, I want to be set up for the rest of my life. And uh, I don't want anyone to bother me ever again. <laughs> Um, but in the Federation people like their existence I suppose so Kirk can't imagine them being anywhere else but the bridge of a ship yep. Uh, yep. which yep. is fine yep. yeah because like, like their, their whole their whole society um, uh, operates on everybody being part of a collective yeah not like the Borg though. that's a different collective no yeah so the, the film ends with them getting a new Enterprise and they're back out doing the stuff that they want to do again they call them um, I say they, I don't know who they are. People call the 2, 3 and 4 a trilogy, and they are. I mean, they, they follow directly on from each other, pretty much. Uh, and this ends with kind of a reset, I suppose. You know, they're back to square one, they're back to whatever they, they were going to be doing, and then we can look forward to so many more adventures with this crew. And then we get the, the final frontier, and they are... Uh, uh, yes. yeah. And then they go off and meet God. Yeah, or some being that claims to be God what does God need with a starship <laughs> yeah which is, yeah, which is, which is, which is the, the one line that everybody remembers yeah I still I still think it's hilarious that Spock's half brother Cybok was supposed to be played by Sean Connery <laughs> and I try and bear that in mind every time I watch it because I've forgotten that yeah that's another that's another podcast Star Trek 5 yeah, oh god wow Next year. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, although the interesting thing in this film is that you don't see the Enterprise, unless you encounter the 
unless you include the na the aircraft carrier, which wasn't actually the Enterprise, it was the Ranger. The Enterprise was out working at the time, I think. So you don't see the Enterprise until the last couple of minutes of the film. But they have the Bird of Prey, which is great. I mean, I love the Bird of Prey design, but they use it so well that it feels deliberate, even though it wasn't deliberate to kind of have that left over from the previous film. It was just... Um, they had to escape the Klingons and stealing their ship was the only way to do it. They weren't planning a time travel story. But it does... It allows them to do things the Enterprise can't. You know, they, they can cloak, they can land, they can hover over the ocean, and it's disposable. Uh, it's perfect. You know, it's perfect for the purposes of this film. So it feels like they were setting it up in Search for Spock to use here, but they weren't. Because they had no idea they were going to make any more films, because there was just... This was back in the days where you didn't contract actors for 20 films. Uh, it was just, we'll make this one and we'll see how it goes. Uh, I commend the writers, Harv Bennett and Meyer, on their, um, on their skills at putting that story together and making great use of a, a disposable starship that they had lying around from the previous film. So, so, yeah, so, so yeah, it's a, a very, very efficient use of resources. Yeah. And isn't it hilarious that uh, a, a starship that was once captained by Christopher Lloyd travels through time? Ah, oh, irony. Yeah. It's like, talk about typecasting. <laughs> um, once you get up to warp 8.8, .8, that's when time travel starts happening. There's some weird design choices in The Bird of Prey. It has a new bridge since the last film, which is, uh, which is odd. There's also a hatch that appears to go out in a space normally, that's just right next to the captain's chair, pretty much. So that seems like a weird design choice. Yes, but one of, the, one of those design choices that turned out to be very useful in the end. Yeah. Fortunately. Uh, yeah. And it also allows for some good jokes. I mean, they always say that the the Klingons stink. Uh, and McCoy talks about cloaking the stench. And Scotty talks about replacing the Klingons' food packs because they were giving him a sour stomach. And then Kirk just chimes in with now that's what it was. So I can only imagine what Scotty was getting up to while eating Klingon food. It doesn't bear thinking about. So in terms of the stakes, I mean, the stakes are somewhat low. You know, it doesn't feel like anyone's in any real danger. Um, there isn't much in... Well, I mean, there is action, but not not in the traditional sense. Not in the, you know, firing phasers and stuff. Yeah, well, it's, it's mainly just because there, there isn't actually like an, an out-and-out villain in, in, no. in the film. Like it's it's what it's it's more just like like a, a, a situation that that they're that they're that they're reacting to. Take note, producers of new films. You don't need a villain bound bent on revenge in every single one. Yeah, there's there's no villain. There's just some problems they need to solve. It's a crisis. You know, they they need to find some whales. They need to repair the engines, and eventually they need to get Chekhov back. Uh, and that's it. And some of the best Star Trek episodes are where they're not fighting anyone. It's where they're thinking their way out of a problem or or devising some innovative seat-of-your-pants solution just to get out of a problem. So in that way, it's the most traditional episode adaptation Star Trek film you can think of. Yeah, well, um, quite often stories like that can end up being far more interesting. Yeah. Because you know, when your story like, is solely uh, uh, di dictated by action... And then, then, then there is a very limited number of ways um, in, a, in in which situations can can be can be resolved. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, uh, none of which are are going to be particularly interesting. 
But but when you have problems which need to be thought around, and, and characters uh, need to need to come up with with inventive solutions for like uh, out of the box thinking, because you don't already know um, how they're going to react, react to it, then then, yeah, then finding out things get get resolved is far, far more interesting to watch. Yeah, and the majorly climactic sequence in this film involves opening a hatch. Exactly, and that's um, it. <laughs> Kirk has to open a hatch that's underwater, and that's it. That's your action climax. <laughs> and that's, you know, it's refreshing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not against action. I love action films, and I love action films in Star Trek. I love action sequences in Star Trek films. I mean, I do enjoy a good space battle, and, you know, you got plenty of that in the last two films. All right, you don't get any of that in the next film. And you get a really good space battle in six as well. Um, but taking a break from it, you know, just let us see the versatility of the franchise. Uh, the only phaser that's fired in this film is to seal a door. And that's it. Um, despite the fact they're in essentially a warship, because uh, they can't go shooting up the place. It's, it's great. Yeah, and the most aggressive manoeuvre that they, that they make with a warship is simply showing themselves. Yeah, it's enough. Yeah, the whaling ship's no match. Yeah, and they're just sitting like, uh, screw that. Let's just, let's just kind of just like, run, run after the other, dire- other direction. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, I do think there's tangible stakes because there's always the ticking clock. The, I mean, the first ticking clock is we have... Uh, a very small window of time until the dilithium crystals break and can't be used again, so we're stuck. Uh, so they need to solve that ticking clock. And then there's the the whales are being hunted, which, by the way, they get transported to Alaska, and within a, within a day, they're, like, near death. Was whaling that bad? I mean... Apparently. Yeah. Um, so that's their second ticking clock. And your third ticking clock is we have to free the whales before they drown. Because they're, you know, in this tank. They're just stuck in this tank that's really tiny. It's the equivalent of throwing, you know, throwing a human in a cupboard and just forgetting about them. Obviously, they they make it clear that the whales are mammals during the presentation, which hopefully, as the audience, you're reminded of that by the end of the film to know that they need to air air or breathe yep, and they're yeah. in a tank. Yeah, so even though they live in water, they can still drown. Yeah. This is, this is important, kids. Pay attention. <laughs> Although you think they could have just left a little bit of clearance at the top of the tank so that they could, you know, breathe. But, uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess you, you make do with what you've got. I mean, they did manage to get some free free glass, you know, the use free use of a helicopter. So you can't think of everything. And also, when Scotty was was transporting the the, the whales and all, all the water, he, he, did, he, he did say it, it, was, it was more than anything he'd ever, ever done before and he wasn't quite sure what he was doing. Yeah, I love that. I love the look on his face when he's beaming them up and you hear the tank creak, like he's not sure it's going to hold. Just, uh, it's that little moment of, oh, crap. <laughs> it's like, like a, my calculations failed me. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up what do you think of the little art house film that plays when they travel back in time? The what? Oh, the, right. Yeah, the, the little... I mean, I don't know, this like acid trip uh, that just picks some lines from later in the film and just sprinkles them in. I get the impression that... I don't know, the, the way I'm thinking, I don't know necessarily how well it works, um, but in terms of like what line appears where, but 
I see it as them kind of travelling back in time and uh, you know the, the fact that the lines play backwards as them kind of get into the start of that adventure um, but I don't know what all the the wispy heads that turn into each other are all about. Uh, I think it, it was uh, just just uh, make uh, make make a, make, a, make a point uh, about how weird time travel can be, and, and that you are effectively messing with, messing with the fabric of the universe when when you when you when you try try to undertake it. And the film's a couple of minutes short. Let's uh, you know let's let this work experience guy called Wes Anderson <laughs> play around for a couple of minutes. <laughs> Uh, Wes Anderson had no involvement with this film. I just want to make that clear. But you know, it wouldn't be funny if it was like. And this sequence was designed by uh, Darren Aronofsky, who was just working at Paramount after school at the time. It's a weird sequence, and I'm not entirely convinced it really fits in fits in with with the rest of everything. I mean, you could cut it, and you'd lose nothing. Exactly. Yeah. But it was evidently something that somebody decided was worth putting in. Yeah, and it's just one of those things that no one actually knows what it means, so the people we're still debating it to this day, which I suppose is good. Um, at least Leonard Nimoy can't tell us anymore because you know he's unfortunately not with us anymore. So maybe he didn't know either. I don't know. Yeah, I have heard it said that you know people that don't like this film, and there aren't that many people that don't like this film, as far as I can tell. But they do talk about the lack of stakes. But I do, I, I do think there are defined stakes throughout. It's just it's not. I guess if you look at it in a modern sense, the um, stakes in sci-fi films are often, if we don't win, the universe itself will be destroyed, or you know, we'll lo- all this loss of life will happen. And I mean, the stakes are: if they don't succeed, then Earth will be destroyed. That's certainly the implication. Yeah, I always find it hilarious when they get back to the future. Uh, the as soon as they get there, the whale probe just renders them um, useless. And it's almost like they forgot that was going to happen. And I was, oh yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, because uh, as uh, when they when they when they were to leave, uh, big thing about uh, go, uh, about going going back to the exact moment that they left. Yeah, and he was like, oh yeah, that thing. Yeah, it's the only problem they didn't consider. It's like, what are we going to do when we get back to our own time to free the whales because we'd be rendered useless? And like, oh yeah, they didn't quite think that far ahead. Yeah, it's like Spock. I didn't say to fly round our sun. <laughs> Could have been any sun. I mean, I guess they're just lucky they crashed in the in, in the the water. You know, I think Star Trek's the only franchise where the Golden Gate Bridge never gets destroyed. You know, when they risk its destruction and it never gets destroyed. That sounds plausible. Yeah, because uh, uh, certainly because because uh, a lot of that di- lot of directors do, do have a penchant for 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 destroying internationally recognisable landmarks. Yeah, it all works out. They free the whales, and then they have a splash fight. You never thought you would see the Enterprise crew having a splash fight. It's the ending you never knew that you wanted. Uh, certainly in, in, in keeping with the tone of the film. Yeah, and it's it is funny that um, that Scotty does cannonball, <laughs> and he makes the biggest splash as well. Uh, yeah, it's just a good moment. It was during our 50th anniversary Star Trek podcasts, uh, I believe it was Nick that made the point that Star Trek Three is the first instance of the original series crew starting to seem like a family, and this film certainly continues it. And their splash fight is very familial. 
Yeah, because it really shows like just how 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 close they are and how at ease they are with 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 one another. That they're able to do something like and not not run the risk of uh, seeming unprofessional, or have or have anybody think any less of them. Yeah, um, and it also subverts the kind of Star Trek trope, or or it leans into the Star Trek trope, I suppose. Of you've got this crew of everyone, but there's only seven people that know how to do anything. I mean, I suppose with the in the context of the Federation, no one else thinks of this. No one else can do anything because they're too busy sitting there hoping they don't suffocate uh, because they're sh- <laughs> they've lost power. But there are no other crew on the ship, so it is only the seven of them. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and and that that certainly gives a reason for why it's the bridge crew do, do, doing everything. Yeah. But yeah, they're the only ones there. Fine. So, thing on that note, other than us just repeating jokes, I don't think there's that much more to say. Yeah, I think we've pretty much pretty much covered everything so far. Yeah. Um, so, is there anything you'd like to say to wrap up? I mean, I'm sure it's not time for a colourful metaphor, but just to reiterate that on my first watching of the, of the film, it was it was one of my favourite. It's, it's almost it's almost of Star Trek, and, it's, and has rained so. Yes, and, and if anybody hasn't watched it, then then they should they should seek it out. Yeah, get the, don't know why they're listening to this if they haven't. Maybe they just like hearing podcasts about films that they haven't seen. It happens. Uh, it's a bit strange, but it happens. Um, yeah, I, I've got to agree. It's one of my favorite Star Trek films. It's one that I can just. It's, it's one of my favorite films. Never mind Star Trek films. It's a film I can just stick on, and it's always enjoyable. It's always watchable. I never get tired of it. I mean. I love the original series crew. I love those actors in those roles. So it's just, just effortless. You know, it's just effortless, and it, it just, it completely reinforces why people love these characters so much. The writing is sharp. The acting is on point. You know, the characters all play to their strengths. Um, I love that it gives some of the side characters something to do, even if some of them are still a bit sidelined. But still, it gives them more to do than you know. Just repeat the repeat things that are on computer screens and, and whatever else. Um, most of the time, as much as I like Scotty, most of the time he's he's yelling about how he can't do something, and then ends up doing it anyway. Um, and uh, that's just an example. Ahura doesn't really do much except answer the phone practically. Whereas in this film, she does a little bit more than that. Um, she does some. She gets to. Uh, play a noi- the noise of the probe underwater, for example. Uh, the bit where Kirk gives a long technobabble order to her about, um, you know, can you do that adjusting for whatever and whatever? Why didn't he just say, can you? Can I hear what this would sound like underwater? Uh, it would make more sense, but never mind. So it's it's just the kind of it's the perfect original series film in that sense that it's you know it's very character driven. Uh, it's. It's got a good story, it's very lighthearted, it's very funny, it takes full advantage of the the chemistry and that exists within that cast. Uh, Leonard Nimoy's direction is very good. Unfortunately, it leads to Shatner directing a film next, <laughs> uh, which is problematic at best, terrible at worst, I suppose. Um, and I just love it. And the purpose of this podcast is because it's an important day in the Star Trek calendar, uh, either coming up or has been been and gone by the time you listen to this. 
Uh, but we are negative 44 years from First Contact Day. So it's the negative 44th anniversary of First Contact with the Vulcans. Uh, which, you know, we've got to suffer through a pretty significantly bad world war before that happens. I'm not looking forward to that. I think I'll not make it through. Unless I am actually Zephram Cochran. Uh, I drink enough. I actually don't. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah. Um, so, negative 44 years. So, I will wish both Star Trek fan and non-Star Trek fan a happy First Contact Day. And I hope it is celebrated in the manner that you're most accustomed to celebrating it. Which is probably just watching First Contact. And you should, because it's a great film. So, Andrew, I wish you a happy First Contact Day. Live long and prosper. And I'm off to listen to the the punk and whale song mashup. So, that was our discussion of Star Trek 4. Thanks to YouTuber Neil Strawbridge for supplying his cover of the Star Trek 4 music. If you like what you heard, then please do hit that subscribe button on iTunes, YouTube, or any major podcasting app. iTunes users, please leave us a rating and a comment. We can also be found on Spotify. If you want to talk to us about Star Trek or anything else, then drop us a line on Twitter and Facebook under Neil Before Blog, or leave us a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. On behalf of all of us here at Neil Before Blog and Neil Before Pod, I'd like to wish everyone a happy and prosperous First Contact Day. Only 44 years to go. We hope you'll join us on the next Neil Before Pod. <laughs>